This is Shame and the Pandemic. I'm Paul McNally. We start this episode with a highly unusual tragedy. An Italian man is believed to be the first patient diagnosed with monkeypox, COVID-19, and HIV all at the same time. This was uploaded to YouTube on the 29th of August, 2022. It's a clip from ABC7. Previously, it was not believed that monkeypox and COVID infections could happen simultaneously, but the man tested positive for COVID last month after returning from a trip to Spain. Well, he then went to a hospital seeking treatment for a rash, which turned out to be monkeypox. We bring this case up because in this episode, we are going to talk about COVID-19, HIV, and monkeypox all at the same time. Here is Dr. Arthur Rose, a research fellow in medical humanities at the University of Exeter, to elaborate. It then becomes a story loaded with implicit moral judgments about the patient involved and about their actions and how they put themselves into a position to be infected by these three viruses simultaneously and doesn't, in fact, deal with what in some ways should be the core of it, which is how do you treat these particular conditions. We are also going to use the outbreak of monkeypox in the US and Europe as a way to talk about a subject that has been strangely absent in the series so far, sex. I mean, sex is really at the core of modern history. You know, it's one of those things that we both obsessed with and also scared off to such an extent that it's really at the core of everything that structures our you know, modern culture. This is Dr. Joao Florencio. He's a senior lecturer in the history of modern and contemporary art and visual culture at the University of Exeter. So he's the perfect person to talk to about this intersection between sex, disease, COVID-19 and monkeypox. HIV was not and is not a gay virus though it primarily affected gay men, but it is not a result of homosexuality. It's not, uh, it was not caused by homosexuality or by homosexual behavior in the same way that monkeypox was not caused by uh, homosexual behavior. Like the virus couldn't care less if it cares about anything. It doesn't care about anything. Monkeypox is an infectious viral disease. It's zoonotic, which means it can translate from animals to humans and from humans to animals. And it is primarily found in West and Central Africa. It was discovered in 1958 with the first human case in the 1970s. So it's been around for decades, but it only begins to take on a media narrative in May 2022. It presents as a rash and it has been largely associated with men who have sex with men. What also relates us to COVID, which obviously is not a sexually transmitted infection, is a common attack on intimacy, on the grounds of intimacy, of the way in which we are together with other bodies, of our relations that we build up with other people. And it forces a kind of scrutiny on those relations and distinguishes between them and decides which are going to be good and which are going to be bad, which 
is what lends itself to being cast with such a moral valence as the so-called defenders of society would say is essentially attached to it. You know, several people that I know got monkeypox and the first thing they thought was, I cannot tell my boss. You know, if when we had COVID, I never had it, but you know, when people had COVID, you'd immediately tell your employer, uh, I mean, if you could, you know, apart from the people who, you know, were scared of, of not, obviously, of, of not being able to be paid for losing days of work. But, you know, in ideal situation, we all told our employers and we got off sick. And um, it's very different now with monkeypox because it's already so loaded with a particular kind of, you know, sex culture. Or, you know, if you had monkeypox, you must be, you know, like a slut or something. And And this is... A complete different experience uh, for people who have had it to who cannot feel like they cannot approach their their boss and say I, can, I cannot come to work because I like monkey, monkey pox. So they they say something else in the hope that you know it will take them off work for the time that they require uh, to let the kind of the the, the infection uh, run its course. In other words, these people were made to feel shame for being infected with monkeypox. As concern begins to mount, there's a desire to find a useful subgroup who can be targeted as being both the at-risk group who needs to be helped, but also the causative group. And this is where I think we start to get the potential for health narratives to both kill and cure coming out, right? This sort of sense of like, you know, there's that old chestnut from Paracelsus that the dose is also the poison. Any curative taken in high enough doses becomes a kind of poison. What happens is that public health narratives, although we can assume with good intent, try to isolate a group where which is most at risk, what ends up happening is that that group becomes then the driver for the disease and therefore associated with the continuance or the perpetuation of that disease. Now we move on to Dr. Fred Cooper. He's a research fellow in the history of medicine at the University of Exeter. By kind of putting sex into crisis in this kind of very public health way, what it does is demonstrate the extent of underlying or latent homophobia in people who would never kind of dream of thinking of themselves as, as homophobic in general uh, are suddenly really kind of preoccupied with what uh, people are doing <laughs> with each other. Fred brings into sharp focus for us how shame and monkeypox collide. Where the shame is, is in the sort of structural neglect of men who have sex with men as a population who who deserve good health, um, who are kind of fully socially entangled, who are part of society. Only when monkeypox is seen as spilling out of these kind of constraints, uh, it becomes more of a source of moral and social panic. So that the possibility that it might afflict uh, heterosexual people or children, for example, that seems to be really key to the way it's taken up and framed as an emergency that could affect us all, when in reality it should really just be enough that it is affecting men who have sex with men. The kind of contention that sexual activity is linked to the spread isn't 
in and of itself a necessarily like a shaming discourse, although it's frequently received as such um, by a particular kind of heteronormative uh, society. Very literally, if you're a man in a long-term monogamous relationship with another man, you are in this category, men who has sex with men. Um, but you are not going to be subject to the same kinds of risk as a man who, say, has multiple sexual partners. So there is nothing intrinsically wrong with diverting resources to the people who are most in need of them. The problem is when you start to moralise about these kinds of behaviour and start to tell people that they're the problem for, for having as much sex as they want to. That's where the shame creeps in. Let's go back to Joao as he talks about what it means in 2022 to carry the shameful rash of monkeypox. You know, imagine being being a gay man or you know, a young gay man and you live with your parents and you're not out. Then you come up with monkeypox is very much like, at the moment, it becomes a kind of a, an immediate sign that you are a certain kind of person. And this is something that, you know, again, being very different from HIV was something that really marked the lives of many gay men during the 80s and the 90s to the point that, you know, you couldn't be skinny or emaciated. You had to, you know, start bulking up and going to the gym to, like, look healthy so you'd not be one of those gays. But he also wants to make clear that despite the similarities, there are distinct differences between monkeypox and HIV. With all the caveats that monkeypox is not HIV, it's a very different thing. Um, actually, in terms of, of, of cultural response and kind of discourse and, um, and also government response, you see some actually more similarities. Very divisive discourse that also happened in, in the 80s, even within, within uh, gay activists, uh, among gay activists, which was, you know, gay men need to stop having sex. You know, what are we doing? We're killing ourselves. And this was, you know, uh, a position that was maintained, you know, by people like like Larry Kramer in, in infamously in, in the US in the 80s. We need to stop being promiscuous. And then uh, the other side saying we can be, we can still continue to be promiscuous. We just need to develop safer forms of pr promiscuity. And so it then the debate seems to be very similar in relation to monkeypox, with both sides calling each other homophobic. Uh, one, because some people who say that saying that, that acknowledging that this is primarily affecting homosexual men or men who have sex with men is homophobic. And other people saying that not acknowledging that is actually homophobic because then you're not directing resources to the people that most need them. And this is kind of a debate that has massive echoes of debates that happened during the AIDS crisis. The main difference between HIV and COVID-19 is that the latter immediately appeared. Everyone had a stake in it and it was disconnected from sex. And I think that was certainly one of the most defining features of, of HIV and AIDS, and especially because, because it was sexually transmitted, because it was also uh, seen to, to, at least at first, to have been identified primarily among, among gay men. Um, rightly or wrongly, potentially because gay men were already going to, to sexual health clinics or had more access, uh, especially kind of white middle-class gay men had more access to, to healthcare, then perhaps that also contributed to that perception. Um, but, you know, when it, because it came associated with sex and, and, and especially with, with gay sex, that obviously opens all, all that kind of uh, historical kind of worms, if you want, around, around recklessness, 
around bad sex, around bad sexual behavior, um, which you immediately shaped the the history of uh, the cultural history of, of, of HIV and, and AIDS. So AIDS, HIV and AIDS never never were never just a disease. They were a gay disease. Uh, or a gay virus, and and these made it be made them be be loaded with all kinds of, of political and social meanings, and be uh, manipulated and weaponized in all kinds of ways. But also led to the kind of uh, what were many years of of inaction on the part of of, of you know health authorities, etc. And that was not the case with, with COVID. However, you kind of I think. We started seeing, on the one hand, there were really shallow comparisons at the beginning of COVID, which really did not make sense, though there were some things that could have been learned from the AIDS crisis when we, when we thought about COVID, um, especially the difficulty of just taking uh, epidemiological data in order to assume that the data will immediately tell us what needs to be done without taking into account the actual lives of people and what they think is important to them. So, you know, and that's something that the AIDS crisis has taught us, you know, it's not enough to say, is it sexually transmitted? Everyone needs to wear a condom because we, we have decades of realizing that a condom only solution has not worked. Uh, so it was the same thing. And, 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 and so that, that is important as well as it being important to target uh, public health policies to, to specific communities, so meet communities where they are and and work with them what's possible to do. And, and the one thing that we saw with COVID was just a generalized uh, guidance, you know, like stay home, for instance. It's it's very, can be very complicated for many people. Many people actually have very uh, uh, much broader kinship networks. Some families are really big, uh, you know. It's not the you know the 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 white bourgeois two parents and two children, you know, like different different cultures, different ethnic communities. But also like queer people, you know, they all live in different ways. And so this idea of home, um, quite abstracted, can be very difficult for people to make sense of. Home can be lonely and dangerous. And so this immediately made relationships that weren't bound to a particular household fraught. This is Professor Luna Dolezal, Associate Professor in Philosophy and Medical Humanities. She leads the Shame and Medicine Project at the University of Exeter, which looks at the role of shame in health and health care. So if you wanted to meet your sexual partner, actually that was against public health guidelines. And there were some high profile cases. Neil Ferguson, who was a scientific epidemiologist based in a London university, who was a key scientific advisor to the UK government, was um, found out to be having trysts, as the media called it, with his partner, who was a married woman. That became very prominent in the way this was reported. He was publicly shamed and he subsequently resigned from his position on the SAGE advisory group. This is kind of emblematic of the, the problematic way that this blanket rule affected people differentially depending on their social situation or social position. You know, that is a, an example of a, a heterosexual consensual relationship. Um, but there were other ways that this, the lockdown presupposed certain circumstances like 
where those who infringe those circumstances or, or didn't meet those circumstances were then stigmatized or blamed or shamed and thinking about multi-generational households. When particular social groups are marked as stigmatized, they are also marked as less deserving. So they're less deserving of medical care, less deserving of medical research. This, you know, concretely disadvantages them and has really concrete effects, not only for their social position, but also for health outcomes. And I think that is definitely what we saw during the HIV AIDS ap epidemic and there are kind of echoes of that with the monkeypox problem. Here is Fred again. There's also this broader lack of attentiveness in terms of thinking about what lockdown is and what public health measures can be, which completely ignores transient relationships, whether sexual or otherwise, in terms of really ossifying social relations in terms of what you already had available to you uh, at the start of the pandemic, right? So so if you have people you used to go and spend time with regularly, like friends and family, you can call them. That kind of retains some form of social bond, uh, albeit at, at a distance and under slightly strange circumstances. But if you are someone for whom um, more transient relationships um, or interactions are meaningful, whether for loneliness or in sex, then really the possibility for these is seriously curtailed or closed down. So it's a, it's a lack of imagination and understanding on the part of the people who are devising these regulations as to how we're all kind of relationally uh, entangled with one another and how these different entanglements might come and go across the course of several years. Here's Joao talking about the resurgence of cruising for gay men during the COVID-19 lockdown. In London and Berlin, there was also kind of a, a, a rejuvenation almost of like cruising, gay cruising in parks because clubs were closed. You couldn't be home with people either. So people were doing it in parks. And then that also gained a lot of, of, of critical responses. Again, that were the gay men that were not taking responsibility for the good of everyone else or for the health of everyone else which was, you know, slightly imbalanced as well when you think about, I don't know, all the factories that continued working. So again, in Germany, in the UK, manufacturers continued working, uh, you know, Amazon warehouses continued to work, uh, you know, all these other structures that then are important for other people because, you know, we all kept on getting deliveries. We all kept on getting, you know, food delivered. Uh, and these places were, were places of, of, um, uh, where, where COVID was also spreading. But that was seen as perhaps necessary. So there, there was something there, I think, in relation to that, um, as there was with you know, the, the infamous gay cruises that happened in Mexico, where lots of people went uh, and then again made the headlines. Um, you know, regardless of, without even acknowledging potentially what these men may have done, like could they have been vaccinated, uh, what kinds of, of say community ways of, of, of addressing or managing risk were in place, which is something that we also learned from the AIDS crisis because no one was doing anything and it was gay communities and, and queer communities that found ways of managing risk and sharing that knowledge before you know governments did anything about it. So there was that kind of, I think with COVID, there was that disconnect between not community knowledge and the importance of community knowledge and the importance of speaking to people 
in a language they understand and and valuing the things that matter to them when making public health policy rather than coming up with a one size fits all approach which didn't happen with with HIV and we saw a bit of that with covid obviously because it's about sex then because sex is seen as something that that is either superfluous or and kind of unnecessary and so easily to to just not do because it's gay sex then it comes with all those you know the legacy of of histories but also what i think in a way is gay men came to be accepted as part as like citizens you know full citizenship and and part of of society also somehow came or, or somehow required that forms of, of gay male um, sexual sociability that had existed and, and, and still continue to exist, uh, but have existed for, for a long time, somehow have to be not public or not talked about or not acknowledged as a condition you know, for, for kind of citizenship, for, for like full participation, uh, for equality, if you want. The crux is that when these restrictions were put together, sex was not seen as valuable. Imagine telling a straight couple, okay, you cannot have sex. So everything that is sex outside of, insti- of recognized and institutionalized forms, forms of sexuality then becomes a problem because the, the kind of value system that it contributes to is not the value system that, you know, kind of a majority society or like a heteropatriarchal society, if you want, uh, aligns itself with. So that is always the problem, has always been the problem with, with gay sex. You know, it's sex that is not, tends not to be monogamous. Uh, it's sex that tends not to be connected to, to say, institution of marriage or to reproduction. So it, it is seen as sex that plays no, no social function in kind of reproducing society. Um, so it's sex that is seen as just sex for pleasure, while, you know, the way in which heteropatriarchal Western culture accepts sex is by, well, it's pleasure that one has to endure in order to f- fulfill the function of, of reproduction uh, or of like of, of sustaining marriage. So you are allowed to surrender to pleasure, but only in that way. If acknowledging that many gay men are promiscuous can result in homophobia among, among some people, then that's something that you know we actually are used to deal with. We've dealt with since since the AIDS, the AIDS crisis, but it is really important that that resources are directed now to men who have sex with men because it seems to be the vast majority of people affected by this. On the twenty third of May, two thousand twenty two, the Guardian reports the UN denouncing what they called homophobic and racist reporting on monkeypox spread, while. UNAIDS had said a significant proportion of recent monkeypox cases have been identified among gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. Transmission was most likely via close physical contact with a monkeypox sufferer and thus could affect anyone. And then trying to reinforce the fact that portrayals of Africans and LGBTI people reinforce in their, quote, reinforce homophobic, racist stereotypes and exacerbate stigma. What we see with that is an attempt 
by the United Nations AIDS Agency to get ahead of what they foresee as a stigmatizing response or what had already materialized as somewhat stigmatizing response. However, it is unfair and potentially dangerous to make monkeypox the problem of sexual health services. Even the fact that you, while COVID was something that was addressed at, say, primary care level, at the level of GPs, through in nat- through kind of national coordination, this immediately, because it's first a emerges among gay men, and gay men, according, I believe, to the latest data that I've seen, many of, of, of whom uh, have histories of, um, either have uh, live with HIV or have histories of, of kind of other STI, so um, people who, are, who access sexual health services by default, then immediately we, the governments decide to load, further load sexual health services with uh, the responsibility of, of containing uh, the monkeypox outbreak. And, and what this is leading to is uh, that services that were already really unfunded and struggling to, to keep up with everything else to now have to find time and capacity and resources to deal with this. Joao's argument is that work needs to be done so culturally, people don't blame diseases on poor behavior. So it's this connection that you also saw with COVID, this connection between this kind of loading of, of a virus with morality. Like a virus does not choose who's the good person and the bad person. There's all kinds of factors that, that influence the ways we behave. Uh, sometimes, you know, choices are made in the moment and 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 no one should take that kind of responsibility or like judge other people for um, for doing something that they think they shouldn't be doing. Um, at the same time, it's and this is really from, from, from COVID when you start seeing just public health guidance or, or extrapolating what behaviors should be purely on the basis of epidemiological kind of data and graphs. But, you know, one of the things that, epidemiology itself cannot do or can't do on its own is to identify the people and their living conditions and what matters to them just purely from numbers and graphs. So there needs to be a connection between epidemiological data with everyday the everyday life of, of, of people. You know, what are the kinds of the, the things that matter to them what are the things that structure their lives? What are the kinds of kinship and relations of intimacy that are important to them? Uh, and to acknowledge the value that they have within, the, within those communities um, rather than expect that the kind of a, a universal form of prevention will be taken up by, by everyone because that's, that's not the case. So it's about engaging uh, communities, but it's also about l- hearing from them what they need rather than expecting to know what, what they need and knowing what they do in order to, within their own communities, to, to kind of manage risk. You know, I think that's one of the biggest lessons from the HIV crisis, which is to disconnect an infection or an epidemiological you know, event, a public health event, from uh, kind of agency from and from morality and to work with the people first with the people who are most affected without 
making the infection a kind of a, a, a symptom of what the people are. Here's Luna again. Our research has focused on looking at COVID through a shame lens and trying to understand and articulate um, what this means for public health. So how public health um, rhetoric, policy, communications, practices are implicated in practices of shame and shaming. And our analysis is by no means restricted to COVID. I mean, you only have to think about the concerns around monkeypox to see how shame, shaming, and stigma have this absolute relevance when um, considering public health interventions to tackle outbreaks of illness and disease. Is there is there any like immediate things you think of around what the government should have done in response to monkeypox, which they could have learnt from the pandemic we've just been in in the last couple of years? Singling out a particular demographic as being responsible for the spread of the disease. So there was, again, this... Um, stigmatizing, naming, shaming, and blaming narrative around monkeypox, where it was gay men who frequented saunas were immediately identified as kind of culprits in this outbreak. And there was a backlash in the media where this the stigmatizing language that was deployed in the initial stages of reporting on the outbreaks and the demographics that were involved. That initial phase of reporting was heavily criticized for being stigmatizing and blaming and shaming. And we, we saw a really similar dynamic in COVID where you know different groups at different times were singled out for being the culprits for the spread of COVID. You know, it was students partying in Freshers' Week at one point. It was multi-generational households. It was youths in parks. It was beachgoers in Bournemouth and so on. Arthur explains how he has benefited from thinking about shame in relation to the pandemic. I find I still go into shops and see the signs saying I need to wear a mask and find myself in a kind of state of some confusion about whether I should be wearing a mask when in fact nobody else in the shop is wearing a mask. So there's a sort of situation that we we haven't really ended the last pandemic and we're finding a new epidemic emerging and it can't we can't help but think of monkeypox against the backdrop of covid which is one of the reasons why i think it has received the kind of attention it has you've been listening to shame and the pandemic I'd like to give a huge thanks to the UK's Arts and Humanities Research Council, the Wellcome Trust, the Wellcome Centre for Cultures and Environments of Health, the University of Exeter, Alice Waterson, the Drama Department's podcasting studio, and all our contributors. This podcast has been produced by Volume. I'm Paul McNally. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Volume.